You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to the first Middle East analysis of 2021. I'd like to be optimistic and chirpy, I might sound it a little bit, but it is lockdown time here in the UK as us and not just us, the rest of the world as well of course, are facing this global coronavirus pandemic. But you cannot lock down the irrepressible Dr Harry Hagopian who is joining me remotely down the line. Harry, how are you? Hello, James. I like today. I'm irrepressible. It's a pleasure being with you again, and it's a pleasure to do our monthly Middle East analysis with you. I think it was indomitable last time, but yes, we've changed that slightly this time <laughs> around. <laughs> now, we did talk about the Gulf Cooperation Council last time as one of the many strands of our piece. We're actually going to focus on it today because we don't often have particularly positive news or not something we can sink our teeth into and analyse in a in a more positive and productive way. But we are going to talk about the GCC summit that took place on the 5th of January, some days back, which led to a sort of reconciliation we'll talk about uh, you know that the, what that means and how that might stand in the future after what has been called variously a spat a blockade an embargo of Qatar by Saudi Arabia Bahrain UAE and Egypt and at that summit which is a regular summit this is I think the 41st annual summit because the GCC was formed, I believe, Harry, in 1981, May 1981. Is that right? It was. And the first meeting took place in the United Arab Emirates, uh, James. And you used all the words to describe the spat, as I called it. You could have also added boycott or blockade. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And you did speculate, Harry, before Christmas that this, you you felt it inevitable it would come to an end sometime soon, but you were, of course, unwilling to put a particular deadline on that for for obvious reasons. Now, before we, we go on, I think we should have a sort of very basic recap of how the embargo, the blockade came into place some three and a bit years ago. And interestingly, your friend, the um, highly respected journalist Rami Huri, has described boycotts as fool's tools. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it in terms of, you know, how how the region, how the powers of the region go about their diplomacy or not. And in this case, would you describe the boycott, the blockade as a fool's tool? I would. uh, Perish be for me to disagree with uh, Rami Khouri, not only a very respected and well-known journalist and analyst, but also a dear friend. And I would agree with him because what he calls uh, fool's tools, I've called a spat. And when I've said a spat, it's in a sense to try and belittle the relevance of this conflict at a time when the geopolitics of the Gulf did not require another falling out amongst the six members of this region. So in a sense, to put it into some sort of a perspective, James, as you said, let me just remind our listeners that the siege, the conflict itself, began in June of 2017. So that was three and a half years ago before the uh, summit meeting, the 41st summit, took place in Al-Ula in Saudi Arabia on the 5th of January. And in a sense, the conflict started immediately after a summit another one of those GCC summits that was attended by President Donald J. Trump. 
Now, what we need to realize that in the 40 or so odd years of uh, GCC relevance, it hasn't all been plain sailing. There have been other spats, there have been other disagreements, notably one that took place in February 2014 when the ambassadors of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain were also recalled from Doha in uh, Qatar. At that time, it revolved around uh, Qatar's alleged support uh, to the election of Mohamed Morsi as president of Egypt. However, it didn't spin out of control and it didn't last three and a half years. It only lasted a few months, not least because at that time, Obama was busy. He was the president. He was busy with Iran. He was busy with the JCPOA nuclear agreement. So in a sense, there have been other wrinkles along the road because you cannot put six countries which have their own, perhaps at times, diverging interests together and expect them all to uh, stay on the same rail. However, this one was the most serious that started in June 2017 and lasted until this summit in January 2021, when the Al-Ula agreement, named after the place where it took place, but also uh, mentioning the two key mediators, the late Kuwaiti ruler and the late Omani ruler, until that agreement was signed by all six GCC members, and we now have what is a different uh, reality on the ground. So I think the obvious question somewhat, Harry, because uh, in your YouTube video on this particular subject, you actually, which I found quite interesting, recorded it slap bang when the process was was going on. And, and of course, you therefore weren't reflecting on the conclusions or agreements of that particular summit. So I guess we'll pick up from that point now. And, and I'll just ask you simply, what was achieved? It's a good question, uh, uh, James. The final communique, the Alola agreement I just referred to, declared that the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council members, will stand together as one to confront any threat to any member uh, state. And it also said, and I think this is key to the whole thinking today, and one that I have sort of hammered home time and again, they also said that the GCC will prevent any violation of sovereignty or disturbance to the security of any GCC state. Now, if you look at this, there are so many things already that come out of what it means. Standing together is basically a repeat, a reiteration of what they said about stability and solidarity in the Gulf region amongst those six GCC member states. Okay? Violation of sovereignty is key because when I was talking to you about why there had been previous spats and why this one started in 2017, it was because three countries, namely Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, in addition to Egypt, but Egypt basically tagged on, that they decided they didn't like the way Qatar was conducting its uh, foreign policy. And therefore, when the agreement, the communique says that the GCC will prevent any violation of sovereignty, it means that each country has the sovereign right, as it should under international law, 
to pursue its own foreign policy so long that that does not interfere with the foreign policy of a neighbor in the region. And when it talks about the disturbance to the security of the GCC state, what it means is that it will be careful as to what Iran and to a lesser extent Turkey do in terms of disturbing the security of any GCC state. Now, why did I put those two together? I put those two together because if you look at the three countries that are part of the boycott plus Egypt, on the one hand, you have Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. I put them in one box and then I put the United Arab Emirates and uh, Egypt in another. Why? Because Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, for them, the biggest threat to the GCC and to the Arab Gulf region is still Iran. Whereas for the United Arab Emirates and for Egypt, it is not so much Iran as it is Islamist movements, chief among them, the Muslim Brotherhood. So there already you can see that four boycotting, blockading, sieging countries have different understandings of what is the threat faced by their organization in the region. Add to it the Turkey element, where some countries get along fine with Turkey, others don't. And let's not forget, when the blockade started and Qatar was cut off from those three GCC countries, Qatar was very, very innovative and very creative. Instead of buckling down under the weight of those famous declarations and threats of boycott, it basically turned its foreign policy in a different direction and it reinforced its relations with Iran and with Turkey. So therefore, Qatar was very able to stand up on its own feet despite the blockade, despite the boycott, despite the attitude of those three countries. So basically, those elements, Iran, Islamist groups, and Turkey were key to what created this spat. And if you remember in my YouTube on the on the Gulf summit, which, as you said, I recorded whilst the summit was taking place, there were three sessions. The first one was for the media. The second one was the closed session in camera. And then the third one was, at the end, the goodbyes. And it's very interesting what discussions took place amongst the leaders in the second closed session where these matters will have been debated and will which the communique or the Al-Ula agreement reflected in terms of stability, solidarity, sovereignty, and security. And Harry, just for my understanding on this, just to pick up on, on one point, obviously before the agreement, we knew that Saudi Arabia had opened its airspace, and therefore I guess Qatar Airlines is now flying through Saudi airspace as we speak, I'm sure. But um does this mean as well that those those other states, uh, Bahrain, UAE, have they also opened up their airspace? Are they trading with one another or is this just the infancy, the early stages? No, no, no. The others have also opened. I mean, what had happened with the boycott, uh, James, is that the airspace and the land and sea crossings were all closed off uh, in, uh, and Qatar could not move in any of those directions and that was quite difficult because the only land crossing that Qatar has is through Saudi Arabia and that was closed as well. But since the agreement, 
it was gradual, it was incremental. The key mediator was the Kuwaiti leader, the ruler who passed away and his successor. But in addition to that, the U.S. administration was also quite keen to see that this spat, this conflict is wrapped up because in its own mind, it did not want to be bothered with an internecine Arab Gulf conflict when, according to the Americans, the big bogey man, the big foe is Iran. So Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of President Trump, persuaded to some extent Saudi Arabia to open its airspace to Qatar Airways in order to tighten the pressure on Iran. Why, you might ask, or perhaps our listeners would ask why. The reason is not only goodwill gestures, but when the boycott started in 2017 and Qatar Airways, for instance, which is a wonderful carrier for Qatar, could not fly through Saudi airspace, it had to divert and go via Iran. Now, in order to do that, it had to pay 133 million US dollars annually to Iran for the use of its airspace. And therefore, Iran was getting $133 million richer per annum, which didn't suit the Americans. Hence, Jared Kushner was very keen for this embargo to end. And in a sense, once the Saudis, who pretty much led the return to negotiation and reconciliation, once the Saudis opened all their air, land and sea crossings, the others, some more grudgingly than others, opened their airspace as well. So it has started again. And interestingly enough, Egypt, almost two days after the agreement was signed by all six leaders at the summit on the 5th of January, what happened is that there was the opening of a new uh, hotel in Egypt, which was funded by Diyar, which is a Qatari company, and a Qatari minister for the first time since 2017 was actually there two days later, which means that when you talk about reconciliation, at least on the surface, and I do mean on the surface, already the visible signs are there, goods are coming in, travelers from Qatar to Saudi and Saudis to Qatar is already happening in their big fancy SUVs across the land crossing. And even in Egypt, the minister was there cutting the rope or cutting the ribbon for the opening of the hotel. That's interesting, Harry, and you're quite good at preempting my questions, I must say, because the principal one was going to be, I've read a lot about Saudi, Bahrain, UAE, of course, but not much about Egypt and and its role, because if you've got, obviously, the Gulf Cooperation Council, they can get together, they can make an agreement, they can be face to face. But Egypt, as as you said earlier on, sort of tagged on in the first place three and a half years ago. So I was wondering what sort of, maybe not binding, but what tangible response we we would have from Egypt? Or do they just gently back away from the things that they stepped forward on earlier? They probably gently back away from the boycott and the siege and the sort of big claims that they made in the original 13 conditions, which I called 
impractical threats that they issued against Qatar in June of 2017 when they said if Qatar doesn't do this, that and the other, shutter Al Jazeera network, not talk to Islamist groups, whatever it is, there are 13 of them, it's available on uh, anywhere on the internet. They would gently back away from that because interestingly enough, although ministers and responsible politicians from all sides have spoken about this agreement, we haven't yet seen the full agreement and therefore it's more conjecture and more analysis than actually reading it word for word literally. And in that sense, I think it's better because that's the way how the Gulf works. It works in the sense that there was an understanding, there was an agreement for reconciliation, for solidarity, stability, the whole thing I spoke about five, ten minutes ago, which will move on. But if you want something concrete, it's very interesting about how the quid pro quo in those negotiations manifested itself. For instance, the blockade on Qatar ended, and this was the most critical part of it, whilst in return, for instance, Qatar dropped the legal cases that it had already brought before the International Trade Organization, the ITO, as well as the International Civil Aviation Organization, and it wanted to obtain compensation amounting to some $5 billion due to damages incurred from the airspace closure. So when the airspace was opened, Qatar in return dropped those cases and both sides actually won something out of it. Qatar Airways can fly, passengers can go in and out of the country. In return, the threat of $5 billion, which Qatar will have, in my opinion as a lawyer, will have won because it had the right evidence in its hands. That was also put to one side, shunted to one side. And therefore, all sides, at least in this practical, concrete manner, managed to move forward. Harry, now we obviously on a single issue podcast want to keep this nice and snappy. So I'll perhaps ask you one final question looking to the future. I won't make it as simple as will this reconciliation hold? I think you've made that point and you can talk further on that. It's more, you mentioned obviously Kuwait and Oman and, you know, the old and the new, the previous leaders and the new leaders. But I'd just like to ask you whether this potentially could be a template for conflict resolution in the region in the future. Yes, I think it will, James. That is the very short answer. A slightly more fleshed out answer would say that the rules, the bylaws of the GCC already included, since its inception some four decades ago, it included mechanisms for conflict resolution. However, the interesting thing is that when those spats, those disagreements, those falling out happened between the various member states. And primarily, if you notice how it works, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain are uh, the protagonists on one side. Qatar is on the other. That's four out of six. Then Oman and Kuwait usually assume, largely Kuwait, but also Oman, the role of mediators. And in this, let me also add as food for thought for our listeners, and you might know this, in my opinion, the leader of the pack of protagonists was not necessarily always Saudi Arabia, but it was the UAE. And if there is a problem with this agreement, it is not so much in my opinion, Saudi Arabia's intention to implement it because the Saudis wanted this to happen and they were quite keen 
for it to happen, and therefore it happened when it did. But it's the UAE which has far more reservations about whether this reconciliation would work with Qatar. And perhaps that is because Saudi Arabia is the leader in the six GCC organization, whereas the UAE and Qatar are almost rivals with resources, with money, with strategic and geopolitical influence across the world and not only across the MENA region. So therefore, the rivalry there is far more between those two than uh, with Saudi Arabia. However, as I was saying, the mechanisms existed for conflict resolution, but they were never deployed, they were never used, because the countries thought that this was a political situation. However, I think that in their communique, as far as we understand from the feedback that has come out of it, is that there has been a lot of talk about managing conflict in the future in such a way that it wouldn't lead to the kind of deleterious, nasty, tit-for-tat attitude that happened since May and June of 2017, when even the Qatari media was hacked, etc., etc., that this will not happen, and that internally the six member states will be able to manage their conflict. Managing is very important. Another principle of international conflict resolution is that conflicts are usually resolved or you reach an agreement or mediation succeeds when a conflict peaks, not when it is frozen. When it is frozen, there is no motivation for the parties to dance. Whereas when it peaks, when the pain threshold peaks, then all sides are motivated to get together to resolve it. And I think that is exactly what happened with this. After three and a half years of useless wrangling, in my opinion, and I'm using this in a rather broad manner, I know, but I want to underline my own feeling about it. After three and a half years, the parties decided, because of Iran, because of the change in the U.S. administration, Joe Biden is not Donald Trump. Joe Biden is not going to be a transactional authoritarian president. Joe Biden will not necessarily agree to everything that Trump actually was happy with about the authoritarian attitude of some of what was happening in the Gulf because of the financial and economic reversals, because of the drop in the price of the barrel of oil. All this led these countries to sort of sober up a bit and move together in order to sign this agreement. So you have the management of the conflict, you have the peak, which is the painful threshold of the conflict. And what is important is for three and a half years, three versus one were doing their best to have a win-lose situation. They were all trying, we're going to be the winners, they're going to be the losers and vice versa. Finally, we see at the start of this reconciliation, it's the start, it has just touched on the plate, not on the content fully, because the content, according to the agreement, will also go to bilateral discussions. Finally, they've changed from a win-lose to a win-win approach. And that is something that makes me, as somebody who's worked in conflict resolution, very, very happy indeed.
Very well summed up, Harry. Thank you. And I think we have kept this to a manageable time. I certainly hope people have found this useful. I have. And also, I hope that, and you can tell I like this phrase, that the fool's tools will not be employed in the future. Maybe something has been learnt there, because that interesting point for me that you made was that, of course, aligning Qatar and Iran and, and trying to blockade Qatar... Actually, Iran made something out of it. It made several million out of having its airspace used. So, you know, these punitive measures don't always work out, I'm sure, as as they're intended. And hence, it's not always a good idea. Of course, Iran made its millions from that for over a stretch of three plus years. But also, Turkey enhanced its geopolitical stature in the region at a time when some of the Arab countries don't want to see that happen. So it is always important to approach this from a win-win situation. And the GCC was one organization that was functioning in the Arab world. The Arab League is a somnolent organization that wakes up once a year for its meetings and then goes back to sleep. Whereas the GCC was far more practical, far better equipped to deal with the region. And then, of course, when the Yemen war came into the fray, when uh, Trump uh, stoked the fire by enhancing those differences and the volatility of the conflicts therein, all this changed the tenor of the region and the tenor of the six member states. And that was what really made me and somebody like Rami Khouri sorry because we saw that something that was working, you know the expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it ain't broke and yet you break it in order to then try and fix it. Hopefully now the deal is done. There's no point in uh, looking at it Uh, with hindsight, is to say that hopefully this realization that it is in their collective interest to work together whilst respecting their individual sovereignties and their individual interests is what is best for a win-win solution. Well, Harry, having spoken to you for over a decade on conflicts in the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf states, I, I Perhaps, you know, we'll say time will tell on that one. And the Qatari-UAE relationship of those states in particular is worth keeping an eye on. But for now, Harry, thank you very much indeed for your time. I know you're very busy and I know obviously life isn't quite as simple as it was before. When was it ever? But maybe in February, I fear we will still be locked down. We can uh, take on our discussions further. We can do that. And in the meantime, I'm sure you'll join me in wishing all our listeners as tolerable a lockdown as possible and please stay safe for your benefit and for the benefit of everybody else yep i'd echo that indeed harry thank you for your time and i look forward to speaking to you again likewise